If you have your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 3 at the 18th verse. Verse 18 of the third chapter of Luke. And this, these three verses summarize the message of the ministry of John the Baptist, of whom the Lord Jesus Christ said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So it is really worth our attention, it's worth our time to study the message of the one who, outside of the Lord Jesus himself, is the greatest man to ever live. And Luke, after giving us a sampling of, of John's uh, preaching, he says in verse 18, So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Shall we pray? Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that works in us and through us and through the Lord Jesus Christ and your Holy Spirit, Father, that make us one this morning, wherever we are, whether we're in our homes or we're listening later on the podcast, Father, we thank you that through your Holy Spirit, we are one. Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds, that we would hear what you want us to hear and apply to our lives through the preaching and the ministry of this great man named John. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These three verses, this brief passage of Scripture, is simply broken down into two parts. In verse 18, there's the preaching of John. John preached the gospel. And then in verses 19 and 20, Luke tells us that on account of his preaching, John was persecuted by Herod. To put it another way, we see the message of the greatest man who ever lived, and then we see how that message was received by one of the most wicked men who ever lived. So look at verse 18 again. So with many exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. That word translated exhortations is a very common word in the New Testament. In the Greek, it's the word parakaleo, parakaleo. We find it translated to, to comfort, to encourage, to plead, to beg, to exhort. And the verb is in the present tense, so it's continually exhorting. And this is what characterized John's preaching. He constantly, continually exhorted the people. Parakalo comes from two Greek words. The first word is para, which means alongside or beside, and kaleo, which means to call. So the word parakaleo means literally to call alongside, to call someone to oneself, to call for, to summon. It means to call alongside, in this instance, to give aid or comfort. I think of the EMT who is called alongside to give aid to someone who's in an accident. You might know that the Holy Spirit is called the comforter or the, whole, or the, the, the helper in Scripture. Comforter or helper translates this noun form of parakaleo. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside, who is called alongside, and he is the helper, the, the comforter. Jesus said in the upper room with his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper or a comforter who will be with you 
forever. So parakaleo carries the idea of coming alongside and giving help or aid. And we are so thankful for the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of other people in our lives who, who come alongside and give us help. But in another primary sense, the word is used to urge someone to take some action. To come alongside someone and urge them to take some ethical or moral course of action. To put into practice something that they have, have learned. And this is what characterizes the ministry and the method of John the Baptist's preaching. John exhorted the people to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. He exhorted them to live a life that is keeping in repentance. And to show how this word parakaleo is, is used, I want you to turn over to, to Romans chapter 12, the first verse for a moment. Paul's letter to the Romans, the, the 12th chapter. Because here he uses the word parakaleo when he's exhorting the Roman Christians to take a certain course of action, to live a certain way, to do a certain thing. And look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Therefore I urge you, I urge you, there's our word, I beg you, I plead with you, I come alongside and I exhort you. You know, the verse right before, verse 36 of the, the 11th chapter, Paul is in prayer. And it's like he finishes the 11th chapter on his knees in prayer before, the God, before God, going to God in prayer and then while still on his knees, he turns to the Romans to whom he is writing. And still on his knees, I, he says, I plead with you. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. I parakaleo you. I urge you to do what? He comes alongside them, as it were, and urges them to present your bodies. A living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I urge you to present your bodies. Now notice that verse starts with the word therefore. When you see that word in your Bible, therefore, always ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. The therefore refers to everything that Paul has written in the book of Romans to this point. He's written 11 chapters. And here he describes everything that he has written in those first 11 chapters as the mercies of God. He's been telling them what the mercies of God's are. Based on the mercies of God, based on every mercy of God that you've seen in the first 11 chapters of Romans, I urge you, I exhort you to take a certain course of action, to live in a certain way, based on God's mercies. You see, the first 11 chapters of Romans are not just some truths to believe in your mind or even to take to heart and leave them there. Like all the Bible, Paul urges the Romans to put the truths of God's word into action. Put them into practice. Live by the mercies of God. And all true gospel preaching does this. All true gospel preaching exhorts people to live according to the truth of God's word. Now that you know the truth, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to live? And in the case of Paul's exhortation in Romans... He lays out in, in five chapters to finish the book of Romans this wonderful exhortation about how to live the Christian life. Now, going back to John the Baptist, his exhortations did the same thing in his preaching of the gospel. 
It called, his preaching called his hearers to take a certain course of action, to live in a certain way, to bring forth fruits that are in keeping with repentance. He exhorted them to live a life that's in keeping with repentance. You see, John's preaching exposed the wickedness of the hearts of the people. It condemned their reliance on ritual. Uh, They had this false notion that going to the temple, performing all the required sacrifices, made them right with God. And John's exhortations blasted the idea that since they were sons of Abraham, that they'd automatically be saved because they're sons of Abraham. And he warned them that they would face God's wrath, they would face judgment if they did not truly and evidently repent. That is, that they did not show evidence of true repentance. Daryl Bach, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, writes that, John illustrates how the proclaimer of the word should perform his task. The preacher must bear good news as well as news that exposes sin. Some preachers in the past tended to emphasize sin so much that one wondered where grace might be found. Today our problem is the opposite, he writes. Being able to confront people with their accountability and culpability before God. And confronting people with their accountability and culpability or their guilt before God was exactly what got John the Baptist in trouble. John was preaching the gospel. He was exhorting the people. But his preaching got very personal. In verse 19 of Luke chapter 3, it reads, back to Luke chapter 3, verse 19, But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded reprimanded by John because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. You see, John was not just a general preacher that just threw out generalities out there that, well, somewhere these are going to stick to somebody. No, he went right to the heart of whatever the sin was. He did not just preach to an audience. He preached to individuals. And in this particular case, he reproves a ruler identified here as Herod the Tetrarch. This Herod is the son of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great was the ruler. He was the king who tried to kill the baby Jesus after he was born in Bethlehem. Now, now bear with me because a lot of this is going to sound like a political soap opera. In today's world, that may not sound all this strange, but this is a soap opera beyond all soap operas by the time we get into it. You see... Herod the Great, who ruled when Jesus was born, was the patriarchal Herod, and he had ten wives, and he had several sons, and for fear that one of his relatives, one of his sons, would take his throne, he murdered two of his sons that he saw as a threat, and he had his favorite wife, Mary Amne, killed as well. And thus, then just before his death, he split the kingdom and passed it around to some of his remaining sons. In fact, we see this in this third chapter of Luke, if you go back to the first verse. And the title given to these ruling sons was Tetrarch. Literally, the word means four rulers. Tetra, which means four, arch, or arche, which means rulers. 
And in Roman government, a tetrarch was the governor of one of four divisions of, of a province or, or a country, we'd say. So Herod, the great's kingdom, was split into four parts. Three parts went to Herod's son, and Rome retained one of the parts, and that was the part of Judea, uh, where Jerusalem is the principal city. And we see these mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, he is Caesar, and of course, and then it says, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. So there's the first part of how the kingdom was split. Pontius Pilate was governor. And then it says, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. That's the northern part of the region. And his brother Philip, another son of Herod the Great, was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. And Licinius, another son, was tetrarch of Abilene. And so three of the sons took three of the parts. And so the ruler that John the Baptist reprimands here was Herod the Tetrarch, who ruled over Galilee. His full name was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. And he became the ruler of Galilee and Perea when his father died in 4 BC. And he ruled for 42 years. And so from 4 BC, at the death of Herod the Great, to about 39 AD, you had this man as king. He was a petty and arrogant despot. But nonetheless, the king over the area of Galilee and Perea. And incidentally, Herod Antipas really wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch, which colloquially means he was a subordinate ruler. But he took the title of king upon himself. And 43 years as king is a long time, and it encompasses the entire life and ministry of Jesus Christ. From just after the birth of Christ till after the death of Christ, this man, Herod, was in power. So whenever you read the word or see Herod in the Gospels during the life and ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, this is the man, the Tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great. This is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. This is the Herod to whom Pilate sent Jesus and who, was mo and who mocked Jesus and treated him with contempt and put a purple robe on Jesus and sent him back to Pilate to be crucified. Now the problem was at the time, and well it was at the, that, that Herod Antipas, like his father Herod the Great, was a non-Jew. He, he wasn't Jewish. He was an Edomian or an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. And in that sense, he was despised by the Jews. And he really earned the hatred by the Jews because he built his capital city, Tiberias, which was named after the emperor, on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. This city was originally built by Herod in honor of Tiberius Caesar, and it was built much to the chagrin of the Jews on top of a cemetery. So it was desecrating, really, holy ground. And then to make matters even worse, Herod put up idols in the public places in the city. And one of the things we know about the Jews after they came out of Babylonian captivity is that they were purged of any interest in idolatry. But so they had nothing but hatred for Herod. And during this time, even the Sea of, Re of Galilee was renamed the Sea of Tiberias. And Luke records that John reprimanded this petty despot and he went head to head with him. 
Now the word reprimanded means to expose or to convict. John pointed out Herod's sins and his wickedness. And the tense of the verbs indicated that John did it constantly. You went to hear John preach the gospel. You went down to the Jordan River because you wanted to hear John. You would hear about the sins of Herod, as well as your own sins, of course. But John constantly, he continually exposed the sin of this man. He challenged the moral character of this ruler. He constantly challenged the moral character of this Edomian. And it says at the end of verse 19 of Luke chapter 3, on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done. And the wicked things aren't even listed for us here. And you can study history for yourself and you will find out, as someone has put it, this man's life would make a black mark on a piece of coal. John's rebuke of Herod drives home a point for us here that pertains to the preaching of the gospel and how we should preach it today. Even those of the highest social class and those who wield the highest degree of secular power, whether it's in business or in government or social standing, are subject to God's moral claim on their lives. Character does matter. The moral character of a person matters to God and it should matter to us as well. And especially matters to God when a person yields power and influence. Because what a person says and does is born out of their character. It's born out of who they are, who they really are deep inside. And John was quick to point this out on a regular basis. You see, the rich and the powerful, sometimes they feel immune from accountability to God. And they develop a false sense of independence. And they don't see the need for repentance. They don't see the need for asking for forgiveness. And John's rebuke indicates that although he cannot force Herod to repent of his sins, and even though Herod will persecute John, throw him into prison, Herod is responsible to God for his conduct. No one is above God's standard. When it comes to God, we all play on a level playing field. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So John confronted this man, this wicked man, this evil man, whose list of wickedness is too long for even John to write. It's just an accumulation of wickedness. All the wicked things is all that Luke tells us. But this man, in the midst of all his wickedness, had one particular sin that was blatant, it was public, and it had to do with his relationship to a woman named Herodias, who was his brother's wife. We know from Matthew's Gospel that John's message to Herod was pretty straightforward on this. Matthew chapter 14, verse 3 simply says that John told Herod that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. And this is where the soap opera gets absolutely nauseating. Now, I don't even know if I was preaching before a congregation this morning, if I would even get into all of this, and I might handle it, handle it differently, but it really is important for us to understand what is going on here. You would expect a man like Herod, who was the son of another man named Herod, who had ten wives, 
to not have any kind of moral integrity when it came to sexual matters. But this Herod may have outdone his father in sexual wickedness. You see, Herod was married to the daughter of the king of the Nabataean Arabs. The Nabataean Arabs. If you've ever been to Petra, the rock city uh, of Petra, that's where the Nabataeans ruled. Uh, so he was married to the, the daughter of one of the Nabataean Arabs. And so he shouldn't even been looking at another woman or fooling around with another woman, to put it mildly. But Herod had a brother in Rome named Philip. Herod had two brothers named Philip. One was Philip the Tetrarch. We read about him in Romans chapter 3. He, he was ruling that area that, that was mentioned as Trachonitis and Iturea. That Philip ruled up in the northern part of the kingdoms. But Herod had another brother named Philip who was in Rome. Two brothers named Philip, both of them half-brothers. Now this Philip who lived in Rome was a real piece of work. This other Philip was a private citizen. He was a businessman in Rome. He had no rulership because he had been disinherited by Herod the Great. He never got any of Herod the Great's land to rule. He had, he had been disinherited because he was very, very despised, apparently even by his own mother. His own mother hated this Philip. So there's much going on here that we can't even keep track of since there were ten wives and Herod the Great's family and have all these sons and all these daughters born to these wives and there, there are two Philips who are half-brothers uh, half brothers, and they're also half-brothers to Herod uh, Antipasus. One was a ruler, one Philip was a ruler and they had this other guy who was living in Rome. And the Philip who was living in Rome had a wife by the name of Herodias. She was named after her father, Herod. Herodias is the female form of Herod. And, and this is where it really gets bad, if it's not bad enough already. Now Herodias was the daughter of Herod the Great by yet another woman. So Philip's wife Herodias is Philip's half-sister. And this is really sword stuff. It absolutely gets disgusting. They were both children of Herod the Great. They were married. They were half-brother and sister. This is incest. But wait, there's more. Herod Antipasus, by the time of John the Baptist, had now married Herodias, Philip's wife. And in order for Herod to marry this woman, he had to divorce his own wife, who was uh, a Nabataean. And he did that by seducing this woman, Herodias, so there was adultery involved. You see, you couldn't get a divorce legally in Rome unless there was adultery. And so what did he do? He committed adultery with Herodias so they could both legally get a divorce. And Herod takes Herodias back to Galilee to the beautiful resort city on the Sea of Tiberias. Now, just so we don't get things too confused, this might be it. Think about this for a moment. Philip was the son of Herod the Great by one wife. Herodias was the daughter of Herod the Great by yet another wife. And they got married and got divorced. And Herod Antipasus, the Tetrarch of Galilee, was the son of Herod the Great by yet another wife. What does that make Herod Antipasus and Herodias after they are married, living in luxury in Tiberias? It makes them half brother and sister, both of them named after their father, Herod the Great. It's no wonder John was so quick to reprimand Herod. So according to chapter 3 of Luke, verse 20, Herod locked John up in prison. 
Notice how that reads, verse 20 of Luke chapter 3. It said, talking about all the wicked things that Herod had done, verse 20, Herod also added this to them all. All of what? All the wretched, wicked, vile things this man had done. Seduction, incense, incest, all the stuff that's not mentioned here. He added on top of this, this is the crowning thing of Herod's wickedness. He locked John up in prison. The ancient historian Josephus, Josephus says that it was Fort Macarius. It was seven miles northeast of the, the Dead Sea. This fort had two dungeons. And we know from the other Gospels that John spent a year in prison in this dungeon before he was beheaded. And Herod also had a summer palace nearby because there were some hot springs in the area. So Herod was there spending his time at another resort while John was nearby in the dungeon. So please turn over the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 14. Matthew records the events that uh, Luke does not record in his, in his Gospel. So it's good to read to what, what Matthew says is a postscript on the ministry and the life of John the Baptist. The other Gospels tell us that Herod didn't want to kill the Baptist for fear of the crowds. He was afraid of what the crowds would do, that they would riot and do all kinds of things. So, But uh, you might remember that Herod was tricked into it, and we'll read about that in a minute. But after John the Baptist was beheaded, Herod lived in paranoidal fear. He lived in fear that Jesus was actually... John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And beginning in verse 1 of the 14th chapter of Matthew, we get some insight of what Herod felt about Jesus. We pick up the account in Matthew chapter 14, the first verse. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist! He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. You know, how can somebody get it so backwards that it was John the Baptist that rose from the dead rather than Jesus? But, but this is what paranoia does. And what was Herod's chief fear? Herod had chopped off the Baptist's head, and now he thinks he's back to get him. It's like that movie, he's back. You know, that's what, what Herod is feeling here. Herod is in a panic. And in verse 3, it flashes back to why Herod is in that panic. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. And then it gets into the story here. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, that's Herodias, there's the, there's the lady, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. 
Although Herod was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and he brought it to the mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and he went and reported to Jesus. He went and reported to Jesus. What the biblical scholar William Barclay says is true. He said it's, it's always dangerous to rebuke an Eastern despot. We think of Saddam Hussein. We think of all kinds of people in our world today. It's still true today. It's dangerous to rebuke an Eastern despot. In fact, it's dangerous to rebuke any despot because they are so vindictive. It's part of their character. And by rebuking Herod, John signed his own death warrant. John was a man who fearlessly rebuked evil wherever he saw it. And that is the end of the story. If someone has put it, Herod wound up with all the earthly power and went to hell. John had all the, earth, all the heavenly power and went to heaven. And next time we'll see in John chapter 3, then Luke's gospel, this is the point where, where Luke trans, transitions into Jesus. It's all about Jesus from this point, the rest of the point in the gospel. While the other gospels weave in more of, a, of a John's ministry, uh, John or Luke is is really uh, it wants to get to the ministry of Jesus, where where Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness where he is tempted, he begins his ministry. As John said, I must decrease, and Jesus must increase. But I want to close with a final observation about the ministry of John. Sometimes, if not most of the time. Doing God's will is not popular. It involves personal risk. John speaks up and he has to suffer the consequences of his public stand. He describes what sin is and he calls people to account before God for their sin. But he also shows the way out of sin's sinister grip. And when we share the gospel today, we must do the same thing. We must describe what sin is and what it does. What are the consequences of sin? You know, when we talk about the penalty of sin and Jesus dying on the cross to pay our penalty, but there's really a sense where a person can pay the penalty for his or, own, his or her own sin. Now, before you think I'm heretical, listen to this. You can pay the penalty for your sin, but that penalty is death. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That's the penalty. And a person can pay the penalty for their sin by dying. Death, when you read it in the Bible, means separation from God. Physical death, of course, is separation of the body from the spirit. Separation from the body, from the spirit. Spiritual death is separation of us, of man, from God. Spiritual separation is separation from God. And you can pay the penalty for your sin by being eternally separated from God 
eternally separated from God, all that he is, all that he has done, all that he has created, everything that has to do with God, separated from that for all eternity. In other words, hell is eternal aloneness. Aloneness for all eternity. Being utterly alone for all eternity, described in the Bible as the lake of fire. John describes what sin is and calls people to account before God. But he also shows the way out of sinister's grip, or sin's sinister's grip. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, by dying on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and mine. Every sin that you have committed, every sin that I have committed, Jesus took upon himself when he died for us on the cross. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his love for us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in closing, I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 8. 10th chapter of, of Romans. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11 here. And verses 8 through 11 in Romans describe one of the mercies that Paul referred to when he exhorted the Romans to action, to live by the mercies of God. This is the way out. This is the way out of sin's deadly sinister grip. This is the mercy of God. He starts writing in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The word of faith here, he's talking about the gospel that we are preaching, everything that he has said, the mercies of God, how we are saved, how we are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, to, to trust in God. And then he says, this is how to make it happen. That if you confess with your heart or confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What? You will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I want to invite you this morning to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You can't do it yourself. You can't make up for your own sins. And we've already seen what the consequences of trying to do that is. But Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of the world. As incredible as this might sound, even Herod the Tetrarch, if he had listened to John the Baptist and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, and repented of his sins, and said, God, I have sinned against you. 
I have sinned against you, even with all his wickedness. If he had done that, even Herod would have been saved through the death of Jesus Christ on a cross. I ask you, I plead with you, I urge you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And we can do that right now as we close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you right now, Father. And we ask, Father, that you would, because we believe in you, we put our trust in you, that you would forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Father, that you would save. Father, I just pray now that there would be those who would, who would come to you, Father, and be willing to admit, Jesus, I have sinned. I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against others, Lord. But Father, I thank you that through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, those sins are forgiven. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come into these lives and hearts even right now at this moment, that they would believe in you, put your, their trust in you, having confessed their sins before you, Lord, that you have cleansed them, that you have saved them, that you have clothed them in the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have made a commitment to Jesus Christ, uh, I would love it if you would share that with me or if you have some other question that uh, you need to ask or something that you're dealing with that I can pray for you with. And, and you can uh, let me know about those uh, through email. My email address is Pastor Bill. It's all one word, Pastor Bill, at beholdinghisglory.org. Beholdinghisglory, all one word, dot org. Pastor Bill at beholdinghisglory.org. And also at beholdinghisglory.org, you can listen to all the, the podcasts of, of my sermons. And uh, there's also a donation button there uh, where you can... Uh, make a donation to, to this ministry. But, but let me know if there's any question whatsoever or some way that I can help you and, and minister to you or, or if you, especially if you've made a decision for Christ and you don't know what to do next or you're not sure you've made a decision for Christ, please let me know. Please let me know.